You can turn in your Bible to Matthew 19 if you have one. Uh, We'll look at verses 13 through 30 this morning. The text is printed there on the next page also. Uh, This morning, uh, you know, as usual, we find Jesus talking about something uh, that will throw us off balance. Uh, He says here at the end of this passage, uh, and he also says at the end of the passage we're going to look at next week. So these passages sort of kind of blend together, and so we'll sort of take them uh, together a little bit uh, more next week. Anyway, uh, he says here, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Those are words that literally turn everything upside down for us. Living with Jesus uh, means being with someone who is always saying things that turn up, turn things upside down for us, <laughs> saying difficult things for us to hear and believe and accept and embrace. Uh, he is surprising us here. These words encapsulate what he's teaching. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. He's surprising us. He's destabilizing us. He's throwing us off balance, causing us uh, really to second-guess ourselves. He's undermining our self-confidence. That's what he's doing. Undermining our self-confidence in order to relocate our confidence in him, and reorient ourselves on him. Through Jesus in his kingdom, we find a wholly different approach to life, uh, one that none of us could anticipate. And so uh, we'll talk about that this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, help us to recognize and embrace the glory of the kingdom of your Son by the power of your Spirit as we consider his word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So again, as so often happens, uh, you know, it might seem at first glance like we've got some unrelated passages here, uh, you know, at the beginning there with the children being blessed by Jesus on the one hand, and then uh, on the other hand, this encounter with the rich young man. These are not just randomly slapped together. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke all keep these two accounts together in in their parallel accounts of them. Uh, Hopefully we will see the connection that the gospel writers see. <clears throat> so uh, not long ago, uh, beginning of chapter 18, so not too many weeks ago, uh, we heard Jesus teach on a related theme when he said, we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he also told us to welcome people who are like little children, welcome childlike people in his name, and to be very careful not to trip them up on their way to Jesus because the church is... Uh, it's a place where childlike people belong. Well, here are the disciples rebuking people f- for bringing children <laughs> to Jesus. Uh, apparently, they needed Jesus to address the subject many, many times. Have you ever needed Jesus to address a subject with you many, many times? Jesus is patient, and he is willing to do that. <clears throat> so the disciples, you know, they have this deep instinct-level subterranean assumption. They've got assumptions about how the kingdom of heaven works. Assumptions about life and greatness and glory in the kingdom. Assumptions about what it means to be a person of substance. Right? Ultimately, they've got assumptions about Jesus. They've got assumptions about God himself. <clears throat> Jesus makes us aware of our assumptions about life with God so that we would leave them behind and turn to true life with God that is found in him, in Christ. So the disciples assumed that children were basically insignificant. And that since they were insignificant, they were therefore unworthy of Jesus' time and attention in receiving his blessing. The disciples assumed that if anyone was worthy of the kingdom and of Jesus' time and attention and blessing, it would be someone like this rich young man, Someone successful, someone important, someone pious. So the disciples, they rebuked those who were pestering Jesus with these children. And they expressed shock and dismay, great astonishment, when the rich young man walked away. None of this made any sense to them. The disciples were trying to nail down the rules to Jesus' game. How do you play this game, Jesus? Teach us your rules, trying to figure out the formula for success in your kingdom, trying to work out, you know, to be able to work the system. But Jesus just kept throwing them off balance. He's not interested in just, you know, sort of inverting the rules of the game of life that we all play. Uh, He's doing away with the game altogether, and he's reorienting his people like little children uh, entirely on himself. So the young children, infants, really, that's... The word uh, there is is often translated infants. Uh, The infants who were brought to Jesus 
were so dependent that they had to be brought. Right? They, they didn't even present themselves to Jesus for his blessing. They had nothing to show for themselves. They had accomplished nothing. They had amassed no wealth. They'd accumulated no possessions. They'd achieved no status. They'd acquired no reputation or importance in anyone's sight. <clears throat> Little children have not in any way built their own lives. They are quite obviously not self-made or self-sufficient. They do not live out of their self-confidence. They don't even pretend to do that. Little children are simple, and they're, they're unself-conscious. They lack guile. They don't manage their own lives or try to manipulate others. They are humble and dependent and sensitive to others. So that's not to say <clears throat> that little children are perfectly innocent or without sin, but there's something about little children that Jesus keeps returning to. He thinks we need to see as essential to life in his kingdom. There's something about children. So he says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so he's uh, referring to children symbolically here in some sense, right? But they represent such who are childlike. It's not only the, the little children Jesus is talking about, but to, to such as little children, right? Uh, in their humility, in their dependence on God, in their receptivity and openness to love. But Jesus is not only using little children, like reducing them to a symbolic teaching tool. He really was blessing these actual infants who had been brought to him. He really was saying that his kingdom belongs to them as well as to others like them. And that's part of the reason why the church has always baptized the infants of believers. Parents bring their beloved children to Jesus, believing that he'll be so gracious as to have something to do with them, actually. That he'll receive them, and he'll bless them, and he'll be in a relationship with them because he says so, and he does that. Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he prayed, and he laid his hands on them and blessed them. <clears throat> to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What would we normally say belongs to infants? Nothing. <laughs> we would say nothing belongs to infants. Nothing belongs to little children who have to be carried by their parents everywhere. Infants are not the kind of people who have any belongings at all, especially not the greatest belongings like the, the kingdom of heaven, right? <clears throat> but Jesus says that's exactly the kind of person to whom belongs the kingdom. We tend to think that such great belongings as the kingdom of heaven should only be entrusted to high-capacity, competent people, uh, people who have made something out of their lives, people who have proved that they're responsible, people who, have, who deserve it because of who they are or what they've done. We assume that being a person of substance, being a person worth relating to, a person worthy of God's attention, means accomplishment and achievement and accumulation, right? And that's why the disciples think the little children are just wasting Jesus's time and why they're stunned that it didn't work out with the rich young man. <clears throat> I mean, this guy has been successful in every way, but their conception of success has uh, pretty much nothing to do with the kingdom. And Jesus loves them by pointing this out to them and to us. So the rich, rich young man came to Jesus asking what he must do to have life, or as the parallel uh, passages say in Mark and Luke, to, to inherit 
eternal life. What he must do, what, what must I do, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? His basic assumption is that he had to bring something to the table because that's just how things work. <laughs> that's how the world works. It's such a basic assumption for us that we actually have a hard time recognizing what's wrong with his question. Here's what's wrong with his question. <clears throat> what do you have to do to receive an inheritance? Pretty much just be a child, right? An inheritance isn't given because of exceptional performance. It's given because there's a relationship of sonship. A relationship that stands prior to and above any deeds. That relationship is the kind of thing that a little child possesses before he's even washed off in the delivery room. An inheritance is the kind of thing that belongs to an infant before she could possibly do anything to deserve it. <clears throat> That's not how this rich young man has come to think of eternal life. He assumes it's up to his capability, his capacity. He assumes that he has to do some good deed to deserve it. And Jesus' response immediately should get us rethinking that whole paradigm Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So we confess that Jesus is himself the only one who is good. He is the good God in the flesh, and he is therefore the one most qualified to answer questions about goodness. Jesus isn't denying that here. He's not saying, maybe you can hear it in the intonation. He's, he's not saying, why are you asking me about what is good? He's saying, why are you asking me about what is good? Right? He's exposing the rotten assumption. He's saying, you think you could do something good, some good deed that will earn you eternal life. But there's only one who is good. And if that is true, if there is only one who is good, then your way into the kingdom cannot be by doing good. That's not going to define you, your goodness. Can't be by being good or doing good. That's really important to grasp. Jesus came to offer eternal life in his kingdom to people who cannot be good enough to deserve it. It is not a possibility for us to be good enough to, to de deserve the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully, in some sense, you feel that. If you feel your lack of goodness, uh, you would be right about that. That, that is realistic. If you feel your lack of goodness, Jesus has you right where he wants you. <laughs> when you feel your lack of goodness, you let it drive you to the only one who is good. To pray for his mercy and his grace and his salvation, to receive the free gift of eternal life that he has already come to give in spite of your lack of goodness. Right? So, but that doesn't really sink in for the rich young man uh, throughout the conversation but there it is. It's the first thing Jesus says. So you cannot accomplish and achieve and accumulate your way into eternal life. If anyone enters the kingdom, it will not be by a successful performance. You cannot manage your life with God. Jesus wants you to know this because he wants you to know what truly makes for life with God. He does want you to know that. Only Jesus can truly give you life with God entirely apart from your deserving it. So the only way 
you can learn this. The only way you can learn that you cannot perform and manage your way to life with God is to hear the impossible demand of the law and to begin to recognize how far short you fall of the glory and the goodness of God. So Jesus offers up the impossible commandments. He offers these up to expose the spiritual bankruptcy of the young man, the rich young man. He says, if you would enter life, hey, you know, just keep the commandments. So the rich young man's entire life has been built on the delusion that being a person of substance, being someone worthy of God's attention and favor, means building your own life. He's been under that delusion, and really what he has built then is not truly life. Uh, Rather, his life has dwindled to that little idea of being self-made so that he has become a person entirely lacking true substance. Uh, He's become less real, less in touch with reality, less able even to interact with Jesus and receive the reality of Jesus. He cannot recognize that Jesus, what he's doing, is exposing the bankruptcy of his way of life. He cannot recognize it. He's so thoroughly stuck in his way of life, life as successful performance, that when Jesus says, keep the commandments, he says, which ones? Uh, This is just when Jesus slaps his forehead and walks away, right? You've got to be kidding me. Which ones? No, thank the Lord. He's patient. Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is directing his attention to several of the big ones, right? Mostly from the Ten Commandments. Uh, We should spend some time thinking about these further. We should slow down and think about these further, about the particular commandments Jesus is mentioning here, about their order, about their selection. Uh, You know, and actually, maybe we could do that during sermon discussion. This rich young man definitely should have taken some time to slow down and reflect on what Jesus was saying here, to ask Jesus more about these commandments really to wrestle with them. But it seems that's where he's gone wrong. He's built his life in such a way, he, he assumes himself to be a pious person, and he's, it's become impossible for him even to examine himself truly. So when Jesus lists off these particular commandments, he just says, check, yep, kept them. What else you got? <laughs> uh, I had a friend once tell me in all seriousness that he had never broken any of the Ten Commandments. I mean, what did Jesus just say? There is only one who is good. Stop for a minute and think about that. What does that statement reveal about your obedience, about your righteousness, about your glory, about your piety? It means you cannot reflect seriously on God's law, on these commandments, and say, check, yep, kept them, what's next? You can't do that. You want to change your answer? Maybe just something like what we have in the Heidelberg Catechism where it says, my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them. What are you going to say when the word of God incarnate looks you in the eye and starts listing the commandments of God? Please don't pretend that you can get life for yourself that way. Jesus is exposing the spiritual bankruptcy 
of this rich young man. He's leading the guy to a realization of his fundamental lack of goodness. He's making space for the guy to confess his sin and to forsake the life of self-confidence and success. Jesus is not doing this because he's mean and just wants to make the guy feel bad. Jesus wants this man to relocate his confidence in him, to trust in him as the only true way to life with God. So, you know, what Mark says in his account of this in his gospel, chapter 10, is really helpful because he includes these little details. He says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Uh, Jesus doesn't turn this guy away. The rich young man walks away from Jesus. Jesus does not turn him away. Jesus loves him and therefore says what he says. And it isn't only, see if you can pick up this distinction here, it isn't only because Jesus loves him that he says this hard thing. It is love for Jesus to say what he says here. This, is, this impossible word is the love of Jesus for the rich young man. It's the expression of his love to command the impossible to expose the spiritual bankruptcy of the man so that the man would come to Jesus and follow him. Lean into the relationship with Jesus. Trust Jesus. Believe him. Receive him. Put his confidence in him. And forsake the way of self-confidence. Jesus calling this man to that, these difficult words that he walks away from, is the love of Christ in his life. But instead, uh, this is too difficult. The rich young man had too much invested in his possessions so he went away sorrowful it says and that's the insane irony of it he had a choice between jesus the kingdom of heaven and great possessions simple choice he chose the great possessions even though it meant his sorrow he chose it even though it meant his sorrow he went away sorrowful he didn't go away happy because he kept got to keep his great possessions. What is wrong with us that we would do that? Our idols make us miserable slaves. And when Jesus calls us to repent and forsake them, why can't we just let go? Why refuse Jesus, who is the Lord of joy, and instead embrace emptiness and despair? Why would we do that? The way of building your own life, the way of accomplishment and accumulation, is the way to nothingness and misery. Jesus invites us to become nothing in a way that leads to life with him. To become the kind of people who have no belongings, the kind of people who instead belong to him. To become like little children who don't live by way of their own goodness, but who instead live by the gracious gift of sonship. The Son loves us, and he invites us to come and be with him and to follow him. He loves you, and he commands you to forsake everything else that would define you. Anything 
that you've built your life on apart from him. Anything that gives you a sense of identity and purpose and meaning, anything that makes you a person of substance, you know, because these things keep you from him. And they keep you from his grace. So give up your self-confidence and your self-sufficiency and become like an infant, utterly dependent on God for your eternal life. <clears throat> That's what he invites us to. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, being rich isn't great, spiritually speaking. Uh, we like the kind of comfort that riches afford. We like the kind of security and power that riches afford. Because all of that gives us the illusion of a life that we built for ourselves. Jesus says, these things are a hindrance to you truly knowing God. Actual material riches and possessions are a hindrance to you truly knowing God, relating to God, being like God when, when you're using them. To reinforce the idea that the way of achievement and accumulation and building your own life is the way to life. Those ways are antithetical to his kingdom. And when Jesus says this, well, it never sits well with people who have bought into that scheme. Who cannot imagine another way of life. The disciples can't imagine another way of life. When they heard this, what Jesus was saying, they were greatly astonished, saying, who can, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So we might be surprised that the rich young man wasn't the perfect fit. Jesus said he would never fit. He would never be a fit approaching life that way. The kingdom does not belong to those with great belongings. It is not the rich and impressive who are people of substance. That way is so antithetical to, its, to his kingdom that it is humanly impossible even to put the two together and reconcile them. Impossible for a rich person to have anything truly to do with Jesus and his way, humanly speaking. Even so, what actually is impossible for us is still possible for God. That's the whole point of this whole thing, right? There is, there is only one who's good. Where it's impossible for us to enter life by our own goodness, it is possible for the good God to grant us eternal life. Where it's impossible for us to manage God's blessing or even anticipate God's blessing, it's possible for God to bless us. Where it is impossible for us to embrace the way of becoming like an infant, it actually is impossible for us. The Lord Jesus Christ has even embraced that for us. He became nothing. He became a nobody. He became someone with no wealth or reputation. The Son of God reveals true life. He reveals eternal life with God in the kingdom of heaven. A divine life where the relationship of sonship is everything. That's literally what eternal life is. The relationship of the Son of the Father. That's everything. He reveals that to us. The Son is so humble and dependent on the Father that he literally became an infant human child, humble and dependent, having to be brought to the temple for a blessing. His infancy reveals something of his character and his glory. 
It is divinely glorious to become like a little child. We see that in Jesus. It is perfectly fitting to the kingdom of heaven to become like a little child. It is a manifestation of eternal life in the flesh to become like a little child. That is unsettling, but it is wonderful that in the kingdom of heaven, the first will be last and the last first. Right? So Jesus is the first who became last. And he is the last who became first. Our assumptions about life and about his kingdom and about Jesus and about God, they are always wrong. We think the first should be first. The last should be last. It makes sense to us that the firstborn son would inherit the blessing, and that's that. But God has always turned the tables. He's always overthrown our assumptions. You find it from the beginning of the scriptures. He favored Abel over the firstborn, Cain. He favored Isaac over the firstborn, Ishmael. He favored Jacob over the firstborn, Esau. He favored Judah over the firstborn, Reuben. He favored Ephraim over the firstborn, Manasseh, like Marcus read in our Old Testament reading. He favored David over his older brothers, and so on and so forth. In all these passages, the firstborn represent our human assumptions about how the world works. Human pride. The firstborn, according to our thinking, represent how we think God should be working. This is how he works, right? Through the firstborn, always. According to that way of thinking, the eternal Son of God would never come for our salvation. He would never make himself last. The first would stay first in heaven. He would never become last. But God makes the first to be last and the last to be first to show us that he does not work according to our human assumptions. He is always surprising us. He's always keeping us off balance with all these unexpected reversals to show us that when he loves us, he loves us freely. He is unbound by our expectations and our assumptions. He blesses the wrong child. He blesses the wrong child. We think he should bless the rich young man, but he receives the little infants instead. We tell him, we think he's doing it wrong. He says, I know, my son, I know. He does what is unimaginable to us, what is impossible for us, to show us that the possibility only lies with him. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is only in the Son of God loving us, coming to be one of us, to be with us, making himself like a little child, entrusting himself to the Father, opening himself to us, and inviting us to join him in his relationship of sonship that we inherit eternal life. It is only in becoming like little children who have nothing but that relationship of sonship. Only in the first becoming last and the last becoming first that the kingdom of heaven would belong to us. So come and follow Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we can only pray to you as our Father in heaven because you have sent your Son to open this relationship to us. Jesus, thank you for becoming nothing for us in order to glorify us with your own glory. Thank you that... 
this was your eternal plan, that this reveals your eternal love and makes eternal life with God possible. We've done nothing to deserve your love. We never could do anything to deserve your love, but you have loved us in spite of everything, and you've given yourself for us. So we pray that you would help us and be patient with us as we learn these same things over and over again. Save us from our own assumptions and instincts about life with God. Fill us with your spirit, the spirit of sonship, so that we would turn from the way of achievement and accumulation and come to embrace and delight in the way of your kingdom where the first are last and the last first. We pray these things in your name. Amen.